right, good morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this auditorium this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors around here. Uh, excited about where we're going this morning. Uh, we've actually, uh, if you're new, we've been around, uh, we've been uh, going for the past six weeks or so uh, through Jesus's I am statements found in John's gospel account, statements that you're probably fairly familiar with, many of you. I am the bread of life. Um, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. And there are several others that we've talked about over the course of the last month and a half or so. All statements that are meant to tell us something about Jesus. We all bring our preconceived notions into this room this morning as far as who Jesus is. Some will say good teacher, wise philosopher, maybe even a prophet. Even those of us who profess Jesus to be God the Son will oftentimes try to soften him or conform him uh, into our image so that we don't have to go through the painful work of him conforming us into his image. And we'll actually talk a little bit about that this morning. And so the question that we're really after in this series is pretty simple. Who does Jesus say that he is? Who is Jesus according to Jesus? That's what we're going for. Um, John records his entire gospel account in order to help answer that question. We've talked about this week in and week out. He actually tells us point blank, John chapter 20, these are written. Everything that you read in John's gospel account from start to finish, including these I am statements that, that we're looking at as a church, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so if you come in this morning, you're unsure of who Jesus is, or you want to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is, this is a great place to camp out, John's gospel. Uh, and so I hope you're encouraged if you have been camping out with us over the last six weeks and would affirm that statement to be true. Each of these I am statements function as a facet in this multifaceted jewel that as you spin it, you just see something more of the beauty of who Jesus is and what that means for us. And so I was talking with somebody before the service uh, one of my encouragements to you would be, uh, if, you've, if you've missed a week, that you would go back and check that out. I, I was actually talking with a friend of mine in one of our other congregations uh, earlier this week, and he said, you know, around Easter Sunday, uh, we usually throw out this challenge, hey, uh, why not, rather than wait till Christmas to come back and check out the local church again, why not explore this next series with us with the church? And, and he took it a step further with his congregation. He said, what if, what if you commit to being a part of every single time the church gathers for the next seven weeks so that you can make your assessment of who Jesus is based on all seven of these I am passages. And I thought, that's brilliant. I did not think of that. Why didn't you tell me you were going to do that? Because I would have championed the same thing with our congregation. I did not do that, but it doesn't mean that in hindsight, uh, I can't champion that to you this morning. That that I think it would be a really good exercise, even if you've been around for every single week of this series, to take this next week and if I can use the phrase to binge listen, as if it were a, I mean, we're talking like seven weeks, 35 to 40 minute sermons. We're talking about a short Netflix series, basically. What, what, if, what if we were as a church to go back this next week and actually engage all of these statements of Jesus collectively just to spin the jewel and, and to see what, what God might do as we engage all of it um, in one fell swoop? I'm not saying listen to all seven um, back to back to back to back to back to back to back. But I'm saying if we can, you know, in a, in a brief period of time, just kind of plow our way through, what, what might Jesus show us about himself that, that we've even missed trying to segment these things out week in and week out over the last month and a half? We made our way through six of the seven 
thus far. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the last of Jesus's I am statements. I am the true vine. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 15. That's where we'll be this morning. The first five verses in particular. Uh, Jesus's declaration of everything that has to do with the true vine actually goes all the way up to verse 17. But I'll be honest with you, I had about 30 minutes worth of notes after getting through verse 2. So we're just going to stick with the first five. And if you want to have Bible study, you or you and your friends this week and study all 17, you're more than welcome to do that. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you and enjoy it this summer. Let me pray for us, and and we'll dive in, we'll get to work. Jesus, every week of this series, we've encountered your very own declarations as to who you say you are, the implications of, of those declarations for our very lives. I pray that so it would not be just one more series that we'd walk away from having listened to some sermons but with no clue as to how it matters for us. Please don't let this be one more of those type of experiences for us. I pray that we would walk away and know something more of who you are, what you've done for us, what that means for our very lives, and that you would move those truths beyond the recesses of our minds, down into the the deepest inner workings of our hearts, of our being. Change us for your glory and for our good. Would you do that this morning as we take a look at the final of your I am statements? Would you help us to know something more of what it means that you are the vine, that we are branches, and the implications of, of all of that for our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit? It's in your name, Jesus, the true vine that we pray. Amen. And we talk about context around here a lot, and this is really unfair because we find ourselves this morning in the heart of what's known as Jesus' farewell discourse, which carries from John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 17. So if we really want to take it in context, we'd have to read five chapters of the Bible this morning, and then we'd be out of time, and we'd be done, and we'd be calling it a day. So another homework assignment this week might be to go home and sit with John chapter 13 and work your way through 17 and see how this abiding in the vine piece fits into all of that. I think this is kind of the crux of all five of those chapters of John's gospel account that make up Jesus's farewell discourse. He's preparing the disciples for some pretty cosmic level events that are about to unfold, part of which uh, is his eventual post-resurrection departure to the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's in this discourse that we encounter the last of Jesus' I am statements. Verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, when Jesus refers to himself as the true vine, he's not just going after some helpful word picture that would make sense to an agrarian society. That's not what he's doing. He's taking us back to the Old Testament. There are a, a number of different ways that Israel is referred to or described in the Old Testament. God's firstborn God's wife, his flock. But one of the lesser known ways that God describes Israel in the Old Testament is as a vine. If, you, if you'd like to, we're going to look at the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5. It's a, it's a pretty clunky section of scripture. So um, you're more than welcome to mark your place in John 15 and turn there if you'd like. Uh, it's just past uh, the, the books of, of Psalms and Proverbs. 
uh, just to the right of, of those books of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 5, um, we, we encounter one of these uh, word pictures of Israel as a vine. It's actually the chapter right before Isaiah has an, his encounter with Jesus on the throne and declares himself to be a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And uh, he experiences God's grace through the touching of his lips with the coal and, and, and is commissioned as a missionary to declare the excellencies of, of who God is and what he is looking to do in redemptive history. But the chapter before you get to that one, Isaiah chapter 5, we encounter these words beginning in verse 1. Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. O now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? What have I not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will bring down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, verse 7, is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so here in, in Isaiah chapter 5, Israel is referred to as God's vineyard. A vineyard is meant to produce good fruit, usually typically used in winemaking, as the word picture goes. And so we're told that God treated his vineyard, Israel, with tender loving care, only then to be rewarded with wild grapes that could not be used in the winemaking process, so to speak. That is God's vineyard, Israel failed to produce good fruit. In the Old Testament, we see Israel's disobedience time and time again. It's a theme throughout the Old Testament, right? Israel is God's adulterous wife, his stiff-necked, rebellious firstborn son, his straying flock, and here his, his vineyard producing bad fruit. Israel produced the wild grapes of sin and idolatry, and so God promised to bring about divine judgment in response to Israel's disobedience. According to verse 5, to remove her protective hedge, to break down her protective wall, to allow briars and thorns to overwhelm her, to overcome her with drought. This alludes to the, the future exile that God's people would experience, uh, the northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon. She failed to make good on her end of the covenant to walk in obedience to the Lord. And, and so, as you close out the Old Testament, the, the prophets of the Old Testament all along have been looking forward to a day when the vine would finally be fruitful. When is it going to happen? If you come back to John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. That Jesus is declaring himself here to be the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets longed for. That Jesus is the fruitful vine, the true vine. Unlike Israel, Jesus succeeded in accomplishing what he was meant to do. Unlike Israel, Jesus walked in perfect, sinless obedience. Jesus didn't yield the wild grapes of sin and idolatry. Rather, he yielded the, the fruit of love, righteousness, and obedience all the way to the cross. 
Jesus did what Israel could never do. And thus he declares himself to be the true vine. I think one of the first questions that we have to wrestle with as the church gathered this morning is this. Are you connected to Jesus, the true vine? Or are you trying to produce the fruit of righteousness on your own? And if you're not connected to Jesus, here's the next question. What, what makes you think that you can accomplish what Israel failed to accomplish? What makes you think that you can produce the kind of fruitful life on your own that will please God? Jesus goes on to say, verse 4, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. The Apostle Paul says it this way, Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. A few verses later, Romans 3.23, famous verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we cannot produce good fruit in a way that would cause God to look upon us favorably in our own strength. And so the question is, what then is our hope? If we can't produce the kind of fruit that would impress God, that would cause him to invite us to, to his lunch table, so to speak, to be on his team, then what's our hope? Thankfully, Paul doesn't stop with verse 23 in Romans 3. He goes on to say this, For all, yes, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. In other words, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God in our place by his blood to be received by faith, Paul says. That Jesus took his perfect, sinless, fruitful record to the cross. And he, the sinless one, died in the place of sinners like you and me. He took our record of the wild grapes of sin and idolatry upon himself, and he offers us his perfect, obedient, fruitful record by grace to be received by faith. And so one way to approach life is to say, God loves those who produce good fruit, so produce good fruit, and God will love you. And if that's your approach to life, I, risk, I wish you well in that risky endeavor. But the gospel declares something different. The gospel declares, yes, God loves those who produce good fruit. Make no mistake about it. Yet we are far more like Israel than we would like to think we are. And so we need a hero who will come and bear the fruit of righteousness that we cannot bear on our own. And Jesus, in verse 1, declares himself to be that hero. The true vine who did what neither Israel nor you and I could ever do. Jesus goes on to say in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. It's interesting, this is the only I am statement where we encounter a declarative statement about who Jesus is, but also who the Father is. It's not just that Jesus is the vine, it's that the Father is the vine dresser. The Father, as the vine dresser, does two things in verse 2. He destroys the fruit fruitless branches, and he prunes the fruitful ones. We know that the first part of this verse is talking about judgment. It's talking about destruction based on verse 6. If you skip ahead, it says this, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's the language of, of judgment in the scriptures. Make no mistake. The question is, who is Jesus talking about here? Is he talking about Christians who end up losing their salvation somewhere along the way? Or is he talking about those who never truly belong to him in the first place? I know that's a highly controversial question in evangelical circles. 
In this passage, the crux of the question lies in the two words, in me. Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser takes away. And so some believe that the phrase in me implies that you can experience true union with Jesus, true intimacy with the vine, and one day end up in hell. I personally don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all here. In fact, if you, if you read through all of John's gospel account, Jesus goes to great lengths to communicate the exact opposite. He says things like this. John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, this is the will of God, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And listen to this, the most compelling part of it all. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Declarative statement of Jesus. He goes on to say in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life. That's my gift to my sheep. If Jesus is not arguing that you can experience true union with him, a true abiding relationship with him, and one day end up in hell, then what, is, what would he be trying to communicate in that kind of intimate language in me? Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is where I think that the connection to the Old Testament is incredibly helpful. Going back to that picture of God's vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, all of the Israelites are included in that vineyard imagery, right? But not all of the Israelites are truly children of God. Paul says it this way to the church in Rome. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, not Ishmael, Isaac. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's not about the family that you grew up in. It's not about the church that you grew up in. It's not about your pedigree, religiously speaking. We're told in Romans that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. It's about faith in this God and his work of redemption in Christ. That there are many in God's vineyard, Isaiah chapter 5, who are not true branches. John talks the same way elsewhere in his gospel account. In John's gospel account, there are people who believe who are not true believers. John talks about crowds of people following Jesus who are not followers of Jesus. They're even called disciples at times. Most clear example, Judas. One of Jesus' chosen 12, one of his disciples, quote unquote, yet a devil, according to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 70, attached to Jesus for three years like a branch to a vine, but not a true believer. John 6, 64 says it this way. Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe, for he knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. In me, but not in me. Following but not a follower, declaring to be a branch, but not producing any fruit because there's no true connection with the vine. The first part of verse two presents a stern warning to those of us who find ourselves immersed in Christian subculture, who have this external appearance of being united with Christ, but no true abiding relationship with him. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. 
Now, the second part of verse 2 is about something very different than destruction, namely cultivation. Jesus goes on to say, Every branch that does bear fruit, the vine dresser prunes, that it may bear more fruit. That if you're a true follower of Jesus, listen to this, according to Jesus Christ himself, you will experience pruning. It's part of the Christian life, which makes it all the more absurd that people uh, evangelize in the name of come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. That's crazy. That doesn't even align with verse 2, which says the vine dresser is going to prune you. Let me go on to unpack what that means. This is my working definition of pruning. Pruning is the painful but necessary removal of things that get in the way of our enjoying God and bearing fruit for his glory. Let me say that again. Pruning. The painful but necessary removal of things that get in the way of our enjoying God and bearing fruit for his glory. When you think of the pruning of a plant, first and foremost, a couple things to think about. A gardener never prunes a plant with the aim of destroying the plant. Same is true of God. He's never out to prune the true branches connected to the vine with the aim of destroying them. Rather, the gardener prunes the plant to strengthen it and make it more fruitful. We're we're talking about a couple of things here. We're talking about disease and direction, if you think in that gardening word picture. That sometimes a gardener prunes a plant in order to remove diseased branches, for sure. And other times a gardener prunes a plant in, in order to help it grow in a particular direction for its good. That God loves us so much, you could say, that he's, he's unwilling to leave us diseased and directionless. J.I. Packer, I've shared this quote with you before, he says this. He says, God hates the sins of his people and uses all kind of inward and outward pains and griefs to wean their hearts from compromise and disobedience. Still, he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. That that's how much God loves us. That he's willing not only to send us joy, but sorrow. Probably don't hear that preached a lot from the pulpit. That sometimes it takes sorrow to pry our grip off of lesser things that cannot ultimately satisfy us. You could say it this way. If it takes hurling a hurricane at you, Jonah, to draw you back to God... He loves you enough to hurl a hurricane at you. That's crazy. Remember the uh, Elizabeth Elliot quote from the Daniel series, for those of you who were around for that? God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus, she says. It's this kind of perspective that makes sense of passages like James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or as Paul says to the church in Rome, chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That those trials that we encounter in life, and many of us have brought them into this room this morning, whether it be financially, relationally, physically, spiritually, that those trials are the means by which God is pruning us. That he, he loves you so much that he will pry the idols right out of your heart's grip 
in order to replace them with himself. Do you see his love that way? That he will take the functional saviors right out of your hands, painful as it may be, if it means opening your eyes a little bit more to the beauty of the true vine and experiencing a true abiding relationship with him. That he's in full control according to verse two. He's not, he's not absent in the midst of the difficulties of life. He's purposing them for our increased, increased fruit bearing and joy that, that we're oftentimes very quick to point the finger at the devil when things don't go our way. All right, I hope she's not listening this week. My grandma, my nana, she does it all the time. Right? If, if my mom gets a bad work schedule and can't come visit us for a three-day weekend because something didn't work out, it's the devil. Like My nana is notorious for doing this. We all know people like this. Maybe you're that person in your family or friend group. We assume far too often that we're under spiritual attack when we're really under spiritual surgery. As God works to remove the idols deeply rooted in our hearts. I mean, make no mistake, Satan will never prune you. Satan will never strip you of your idols. He's happy to let you continue putting your trust in lesser things. That's his bag, his MO. Only God will perform that surgery. That's how much God loves you and me. He loves us more than, than we like him to at times, if we're honest, right? This is one of the reasons that so many people walk away from the church. I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for a savior, not a pruner. And thinking that way, we actually become the greatest enemies of our own joy. Jesus goes on to say so much in verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That holiness and happiness are not enemies. They're actually the best of friends. That the pruning so that we might bear more fruit is for our joy, according to Jesus in verse 11. He goes on in verse 3 to heap glory onto glory in this passage. He says this, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The word clean in verse 3, it's the same Greek word for prune in verse 2. It's a play on words. That the true Christian will experience pruning, verse 2, and the true Christian is already completely pruned, verse 3. Now how in the world does that make any sense, theologically speaking? Well, if you go back a couple chapters in John's gospel account, chapter 13 particularly, you encounter that same phrase found in verse 3 of chapter 15. You are clean. Some of you know the story. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He gets to Peter. Peter, as he's notorious for doing, says something dumb. In verse 8, he says, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, if you don't let me wash your feet, Peter, you are not a true branch. He goes on to say, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. That with the exception of Judas, who was to betray Jesus, the disciples are declared completely clean in chapter 13. Already clean, but being washed. Coming back to John chapter 15, verse 3. Again, Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That true Christians will experience pruning. Make no mistake about that. Verse 2. And at the same time, the true Christian is already pruned. Verse 3. This goes back to something we've talked about on a number of occasions around here as a church. This idea of becoming what we've already been declared 
to be in Christ. It's, uh, if you think about marriage, given this example numerous times, on your wedding day, you're declared to be one flesh. There's a one flesh union that happens in that moment. But it takes a lifetime for you to be able to finish each other's sentences. It takes a lifetime for you to get to that place where when your spouse dies, you go not too far behind them because you're so knit to one another. Same thing with the Christian life. When you become a Christian, the moment you become a Christian, you're declared righteous, not because you are, but because Jesus is for you. And he gives you his perfect righteous record in exchange for your sinful record, which he bears on the cross in your place declared righteous the day you become a Christian, and yet for the rest of your life, you become then what you're declared to be, right? We grow in in righteousness. You don't wake up the day after you become a Christian, the perfect glorified version of yourself, right? If that happened for you, again, let's grab coffee. want to hear about that, please. I want to mimic my life after you, but that's not the Christian life. That's not true to our experience. In the language of John 15, declared clean, yet becoming what we've been declared to be through his pruning work as the vine dresser. Already you're clean, Jesus says, because of the word that I've spoken to you. What's this word that Jesus has spoken? According to most commentators, it's everything Jesus has been saying for 15 chapters about who he is, what he's come to accomplish, and what that means for those who will follow and trust in him. That believing in who Jesus is and and what he's come to do is what fuses the branch to the vine and gives it life. Again, going back to John chapter 20, the whole reason John writes this gospel account, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Believing is what fuses us to the life-giving vine, Jesus Christ himself. And I love this. According to one commentator I read this week, our being fused to the vine opens the door for the life-giving sap of the Holy Spirit to course through our lives. How cool is that? That'll preach. It's the heart of what Jesus goes on to say in verses four and five. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It all comes back to what we talked about in the Philippians series, that the Christian life is all about seeing and savoring Jesus today and then waking up tomorrow and seeing and savoring Jesus tomorrow. And then we just keep doing that day after day after day until he returns or we breathe our last breath. That's the Christian life. Everything else is the outworking of our seeing and savoring Jesus. Or to use the word picture in John 15, any fruit bearing that we hope to experience in our lives will be the direct result of our intimate connection as branches to to the true vine, Jesus Christ himself. That it's first and foremost about us fusing our lives to him, growing in intimacy with him, abiding. And as we do so, we bear the fruit that we long to bear. Love, as Paul says, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit of the Spirit, beautiful fruit. Think about it. If you, if you take that list, think, think about it in terms of John 15. The fruit of love is produced as we abide in Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. And as we abide in Christ, the sap of the love emanating Holy Spirit courses through us, producing the fruit of love. 
The fruit of joy is produced as we abide in Christ, whose joy becomes our joy, verse 11. And as we abide in Christ, the sap of the joy-radiating Holy Spirit courses through us, producing the fruit of joy. The fruit of peace is produced as we abide in Christ, who made peace by the blood of his cross. And as we abide in Christ, the sap of the peace-cultivating Holy Spirit courses through us, producing the fruit of peace. And on and on we could go down that list from Galatians 5 in all of its beauty and splendor. There are a lot of people in our context who are trying to be more loving without abiding in Christ and his love. There are a lot of people who are trying to be more joyful without abiding in Christ who is the fountain of true joy. Who are chasing after a life of peace without abiding in Christ who is our peace. You don't get the benefits of the branch life, so to speak, apart from the vine, Jesus is saying. So again, it comes back to that question, are we abiding in the vine, Jesus Christ himself? How would you answer that question? I really do wonder how much abiding is genuinely happening in evangelical circles. I've said it before, in the midst of the busy world in which we live, filled with more distractions than a dog in a forest full of squirrels, how many professing Christians truly know something of God's nearness in their lives? Would you describe your relationship with Jesus as intimate, personal? Because that's exactly what he's inviting you and I into this morning. An intimate relationship with our maker and redeemer. A life of abiding, intimately connected to Jesus, the vine, intimately pruned by the Father, our vine dresser, intimately empowered by the life-giving sap of the Holy Spirit coursing through us. And that glorious promise of intimacy is afforded to us by Jesus Christ, the true vine himself. The one who lived the life that the Israelites failed to live, the life that you and I could never live. The one who was cut off, who died the death that you and I deserve to die as fruitless branches. The one who rose from the grave, conquering our great enemies of Satan, sin and death. He invites us to abide this morning. To know something of a personal, intimate relationship with him. To enjoy him and bear fruit for his glory. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to move into a time of reflection, a time to prepare us for the receiving of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here representing Jesus' broken body, and we dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. As we prepare for that act of worship, let me just invite you to sit with a few questions. First and foremost, are you connected to Jesus, the true vine? Or are you trying to produce the fruit of righteousness on your own? And again, if you are trying to produce the fruit of righteousness on your own, how fruitful is fruitful enough? How do you know when you've done enough that God would look upon you favorably and lavish you with his love? How do you know? How do you know you've gotten there? Can I, can I just invite you this morning to stop trying to earn God's love and favor if that's you? You don't have to live like that, nor will it produce what you hope it will produce. That we cannot produce the, the kind of fruit on our own that would impress God. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus took the record of the wild grapes of sin and idolatry in our lives upon himself and he gifts us with his perfect, righteous, fruitful record to be received by grace through faith alone. So if you're not a Christian, I invite you to come to Jesus this morning, the true vine, with nothing more than your sin in the empty hands of faith and to become a vine in the vineyard, a branch in the vineyard of God. For, for others of us, perhaps the question is this. And I think this, contextually speaking, might be one of the bigger questions 
to be wrestled with this morning. Do you have the external appearance of being united with Christ, but no true abiding relationship with him? Again, it is possible to be immersed in in Christian subculture and miss Jesus in all of it. Very possible. Again, as Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, to see whether you are in the vine, fused to Christ himself. And if you are in the vine, a true branch, first of all, I just invite you to celebrate that you've been declared completely clean. Anybody come in this morning and go, I don't feel clean. You're declared clean in Christ. That's unbelievable. That's enough to rejoice over and take up all of the space between now and the time we take that bread and dip it in the cup. Just rejoicing, celebrating. You have been declared completely clean in Christ. That's unbelievable. But here's the deal. That does not mean that the vine dresser is done with you. By God's grace, you now get to become what you've already been declared to be in Christ. That he loves you too much to leave you as you are. He will prune you and me. And his aim in doing so is not to destroy us, but to strengthen us and to make us more fruitful. And so let me ask you a couple questions in light of that reality found in verse 2. Where do you see his pruning work in your life this morning? And then as a follow-up, and this is the hardest question I may ask. Is it possible that you might not only trust him in the midst of the pruning, but even go so far as to thank him for his pruning hand of love in your life.